You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. So we are in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1 is where we are going to begin. Now, here is really what I, I want to bring out to you. Uh, During this entire series, here is really what I would liken my approach to, okay? Some people have have heard this before. If you teach or if you give a man a fish, you'll feed him for a day. If you teach a man to fish, you will feed him for a lifetime. What I'm trying to do is not so much uh, give you everything that is in every single chapter. I'm really trying to show you what to watch for while you are reading your Bible, how to study your Bible, and I really hope you grab the pattern of these things. I hope that you're marking your Bible because you're going to see how really every book of the Bible, when you just read it and really focus in on it, the purpose of the book becomes incredibly clear. And what I love about that is even when you know the purpose of the book, even when you know the premise of it all, you've never exhausted the book. Uh, Whether it is 40 chapters long like Exodus, 150 like Psalms, 50 like Genesis, you can read it over and over and over again and you will never exhaust the treasures that you will find. So the book of Exodus that I'm going to give you here, to be honest, I wanted to get it all done in one week, but there's just absolutely no way I could do that. I had the outline all ready to go and I started uh, looking over it uh, around Thursday of this past week. And needless to say, the more and more that I delved into it, the more and more detail that I saw, the more and more beauty that I saw. And uh, I started doing my final work on it yesterday. And uh, before I knew it, it was four in the morning and I still hadn't gone to bed yet. And this is only going to cover the first half of the book of Exodus. So I hope that you will be as excited uh, as I am seeing what this book of Exodus is all about. I uploaded a file to Facebook that you can follow along with, not only this week, but next week, as we look into this beautiful book of Exodus. So uh, just some facts here about the book of Exodus, if you want to go ahead and write this down. You can write it down in a notebook, or you can write it down right at the beginning of your, of your Bible here, so that it's always with you. Uh, the date that this is written is around 1400 B.C., And it covers a time period of uh, about 1525 to 1400 B.C. So written in 1400 B.C., it covers a time period of 1525 to 1400 B.C. The author is Moses, and the audience is the nation of Israel. Again, very important to remember the audience. Who is the original audience that the author is writing to. Are they saved? Are they not saved? What historical position are they in? What geographical position are they in? What political position are they in? It answers a lot of questions. It helps you to understand the context more. It can be divided into three main parts. Now, anyone can outline the book of Exodus however they'd like, but uh, in, in what I see here in the main parts of it, I see three main parts. Part number one is going to be chapters one through six where God is preparing his people. Chapter 1 through 6, God is preparing his people. 
Part number two is chapters 7 through 18, and this is where God is delivering his people. This is where the exodus actually takes place. The ten plagues, uh, a lot of things that we really know the book of Exodus to be about. And then part three is chapters 19 through 40, and this is where God sanctifies his people. The message tonight is just going to cover part one and part two. So let's just go ahead and dive right into it. Part one, chapters one through six, where God prepares his people. Exodus chapter one, verse one, begins with the word now. This word now really is synonymous with conjunction and. It, this book is a, um, is a continuation of the book of Genesis. And even though Exodus is a continuation of Genesis, Almost 390 years have passed between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. 390 years. And if you want to know how I came up with that, I'd be happy to tell you, but we don't have the time for it right now. But you can um, ask me and I will definitely show you um, the math on that. These 390 years are all encapsulated in Exodus 1, verse 1 through 7. Verse 1 through 7 of chapter 1 encapsulates 390 years. And here's what it tells us. During these 390 years, especially in verse 7, the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty and the land was filled with them. Now these words are a direct connection, a direct reference back to the garden promise that God had first given to humanity, uh, to, to Adam in Genesis 1, chapter 28, to be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. Uh, and then he gave it to Noah, and then he gave it to Abraham, and then he gave it to Isaac, and then he gave it to Jacob. So we see now in Egypt, God is fulfilling his promise. Because, that the, because they start to grow, because they start to multiply, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, takes notice that the Hebrew people now outnumber his people. So he seeks to gain control of the situation here. Now, practically, if you look at that, well, what we see is a king who views Israel's numbers as a military threat. And that's really what he brings out in verse 10 of chapter 1. He says, if, if we ever get invaded and the Israelites choose to be on the other side, we're going to be in big trouble. So practically, we look at that and just see kind of a, a, a military leader being smart, if you will. And as he says, we need to be wise about it in, in verse 10. If we look at it spiritually, however, we see the devil at work behind the scenes. And what he's trying to do is he is trying to wipe out Abraham's family. He's trying to wipe out this promised seed. Remember, Satan is not all-knowing. Uh, as far as he knows, any one of these Hebrew boys that is being born during this time where they are fruitful and multiply, uh, multiplying, any one of those could be the seed of the woman that is going to bruise his head. So he seeks to get rid of them and to get rid of them all. And he uses Pharaoh in order to do that. Well, first of all, Pharaoh tries to control the situation through affliction. And he, what he does is he, he uh, enslaves the Israelite people and he puts hard, hard labor on them. He, he whips them. He uh, makes sure that they are constantly burdened down. And this doesn't work. In fact, the more and more that he afflicts them, the more and more that the Israelites grow and the more and more that the Israelites multiply. So he changes his tactic. 
if affliction isn't working, then I'm just going straight for destruction. And he goes up to the, the midwives, the Hebrew midwives. Now, these ladies were not Hebrews themselves, but they were midwives to the Hebrews. And he says, whenever you perform the office of a midwife to one of these Hebrew ladies, if it is a boy, you kill him. If it's a girl, you save him. This didn't work either because the midwives feared the Lord, the Bible said, and they spared those baby boys. An interesting note right here is that Aaron, Moses' older brother, would be one of these boys that was saved during this time. Since the destruction through the midwives didn't work, Pharaoh again changes his tactic and he ends in uh, the last verse of chapter 1. Pharaoh charged all of his people. He said, I'm not just telling the midwives now, if any of you see a Hebrew boy that is born, uh, I don't care if he's newly born, I don't care if he's months old, you need to get rid of him. And what they did is they took the boys and they cast them into the Nile River. Many, many babies at this moment were murdered in Israel's history. Now this chapter continues the thought that Genesis ended with. God keeps his promises. It starts with showing that even in a strange land, they're multiplying and they're growing. That's usually not how it works. But now, even under the attacks of the world and the devil, so think about it, all throughout Genesis, we see that the sin of his people did not remove God's faithfulness to his promise. Over and over in Genesis, even though it was evil and evil and evil and evil, God used it for good and he kept on being faithful to his promise. And now here in Exodus, the attacks of the world and the devil would not harm his promise. He was going to protect against it. That leads us to chapter 2. All the while that the devil is working to destroy God's people, God is working to deliver his people, the Hebrews. A Hebrew boy is born. And he's thrown into the Nile River, but he's not thrown in uh, without protection. He's thrown in in a basket. And just tell me if this is all coincidence here. Tell me how you can read this incident, all of these incidents in the beginning of chapter 2 and say that God is not directly involved. This Hebrew boy floats straight down the river into the arms of the daughter of Pharaoh. That daughter of Pharaoh, instead of obeying her father, has compassion on the child, knowing that he is a Hebrew, has compassion on the child and saves him. Moses' older sister Miriam sees all of this taking place, approaches Pharaoh's daughter and says, would you like me to find a nurse for the child uh, for you? And the, and the Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, go ahead and do that. Miriam goes and gets Moses' mother. Moses' mother comes to Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter says, I am going to pay you to nurse the child, not knowing that it is her own child that this is happening. What, what conversation did Pharaoh's daughter have with Pharaoh? How in the world did she have the ability to talk him in to letting her keep this baby, I just don't understand how that would have happened. Then Pharaoh's daughter um, names the child. And she names him Moses. And she names him Moses because I drew him out of the water, she, she said. That's why. Moses means to pull out or to draw out. So she, just by coincidence, names him something that literally means to exodus, 
to pull out, to draw out? Or could that be that God was showing, no, I am going to use this person to draw Israel out of Egypt? God is, is working right here, and you cannot get past that. Moses grows up in Pharaoh's home. Take note that between verse 10 and 11 of chapter uh, 2, 40 years have passed. Um, Moses has grown up in Pharaoh's home. He has the education. He has the access to the riches and the luxury and all of that. During this time, Moses comes to understand that he is meant to deliver the Hebrew, the Hebrew people from bondage. This is made clear by Scripture. Stephen makes mention of this in Acts, in Acts chapter 7, verse 25. Listen to what uh, Stephen says. Moses supposed, for he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. By the time Moses, um, we come up to this point where Moses is about to slay the Egyptian, he was already under the impression that he was going to be the deliverer of the Hebrew people. Also, we see in Hebrews, the reason that Moses chose to come out of Pharaoh's, uh, Pharaoh's house and not to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter was because he understood that he was to have a part with the Hebrew people and not with the Egyptian people. So what does Moses do? Well, he seeks to fulfill his purpose and he seeks to deliver uh, the Hebrews. He kills an Egyptian and he hides his body. The Egyptian was, uh, was striking, smiting one of his Hebrew brethren. Uh, so Moses go up and he, goes up and he smites him and hides his body. The next day, he tries to mediate a dispute between um, a Hebrew and another Hebrew. And when he does this, he's not accepted with the, with the attitude that he thought he would. And in fact, one of the Hebrews asks a question that introduces a key theme to this book. So just as blessed and blessings, good and evil, was a key theme to Genesis, what we're about to see in this question that the Hebrew asks to Moses introduces a key theme to the entire book of Exodus. He asks Moses in chapter 2, verse 14, and he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Who made thee a prince and a judge? Who put you in charge? Who sent you? Who said that you are going to be a deliverer? Take note of that. Moses understood that God had called him to be a deliverer, but the Hebrews didn't understand God's involvement at all. The Hebrews tell Moses that they know about his secret killing. The news spreads. It gets to Pharaoh. Moses has to flee. We have to ask ourselves at this moment, even though Moses, because Moses was chosen by God to deliver his people, why did his plan go so wrong? Well, first of all, he had the wrong enemy. He, sought, he, he spied an Egyptian. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's the wrong enemy, Moses. He had the wrong power. He tried to do it in his own energy. He slew the Egyptian. If he was going to do this, he was, okay, great, Moses. In your own power, you delivered one Hebrew from one Egyptian. You're going to have to deliver 600,000 footmen, not only counting the, not counting the women and children. It's going to take God's power to do that. And overall, he had the wrong timing. God's timing had not been fulfilled yet. Genesis chapter, uh, let me see here, Genesis chapter 15, verse 13 through 16 speaks of how Israel was going to spend 400 years in Egypt. Uh, overall, they spend 430 years in Egypt. At this point, it's about 390. Not, or, or, uh, just, uh, it's, just not, it's just not the right time right now. Moses flees to Midian. 
In Midian, he begins working for Ruel. We know him better as Jethro. He marries a Midianite woman named Zipporah. Take note of that because this is going to complicate things later, marrying this, this uh, Midianite woman. And he has two sons, one named Gershom and one named Eleazar. Forty years pass in Midian, and Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, has a wonderful phrase. And it came to pass in the process of time. What does that tell us? God's timetable is going to be fulfilled. Moses tried to do it in his time earlier in the chapter. Well, now God's timetable is being fulfilled. What's happening during this 40 years in Midian? Well, the Pharaoh that is seeking Moses' life passes away. Take note that Moses doesn't know this. He has no idea that this Pharaoh has passed away. A new Pharaoh arises, very important, and, but still throughout all of this, Israel's bondage continues. But the end of chapter 2 is very important. The Bible says that God hears them, he remembers them, he looks upon them, and he has respect unto them. In chapter 3 and 4, we see God is ready to commission Moses, but Moses is not ready to obey that commission. Moses encounters the burning bush. God speaks to Moses from the bush. He makes his will clear. He says, Moses, I am going to deliver my people through you. That is my plan. But instead of just going ahead and obeying it, Moses brings out obstacles. Seven, in fact. Seven total obstacles that are stopping him in his mind from following God's command. Each one of these obstacles is met with an answer from God. So look at these obstacles with me. Obstacle number one, Moses says in chapter 311, I'm inadequate. Who am I? Who am I to stand before Pharaoh? God's answer, it doesn't matter who you are. It matters that I am with you, is what he says in chapter 3, verse 12. Certainly, I will be with thee. Moses verse Pharaoh, that's defeat. God and Moses verse Pharaoh, that's going to be deliverance. Obstacle number two, he says, the Hebrews are going to ask who sent me, and they're going to ask me why you sent me. Now, why would Moses bring up that obstacle? Well, that's the obstacle that he faced before when he tried to mediate between the Hebrews. They said, who sent you? Who, who told you? Who made you a judge and a prince over us? And Moses never forgot that. He said, they're going to ask me that again, and I want to have an answer this time. And God's answer is one of the most powerful verses in Scripture. God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. You could preach for hours and hours on that verse. Now, apparently, uh, Mrs. Davila, and she's watching right now, Mrs. Davila says that I preached too short this morning, so I'm going to go for at least two hours tonight. But I still, I would, I would go uh, too long preaching on this verse. What does that mean when God says, I am that I am? To put it simply, he's saying, whatever I need to be, I am. Whatever you need me to be, I am. You need me to be a deliverer? I am. You need me to be a redeemer? I am. You need me to be a shepherd? I am. You need me to be a, a conqueror? I am. You need me to be a rock of ages? I am. You need me to be a shelter in the time of storm? I am. I am all of those things. You tell them I am sent you. Oh, man. Okay. I wish you all were here. You would be egging me on right now, and I would, I would be still going. Obstacle number three. He says, they won't believe me. 
in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, they won't believe me. Now, God had just told him that they would believe him in chapter 3, verse 18. He says, they shall hearken to thy voice. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, Moses says, they shall not hearken unto my voice. What is God's answer? He says, okay, if they don't believe you, here are three signs. Three signs that you can show them that they may believe that I sent you, he says in verse 5 of chapter 4. A rod that would turn into a snake and then back into a rod. A leprous hand that would be healed again and then water into blood. Obstacle number four, he says, I am not eloquent. I don't know how to speak. I'm afraid of speaking in front of people. God's answer, I will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. Moses still argues that he is not the one to go. He basically says in verse 13, Lord, send somebody else. I am not the person for this. So God angrily allows Aaron to go with him. And let, let that teach us a lesson. When we have a lack of faith, we invite a lot of things in our lives that could have been done without, and they just complicate things. Now, God allows Aaron to come in, but we know the complications already that Aaron is going to bring into Moses' life. But that was God's answer to obstacle number four, I'm not eloquent. Obstacle number five, Moses has an obligation to Jethro. He works for Jethro, so he goes back to him in verse 17 uh, and 18, I'm sorry, in verse 18, and uh, he says, listen, I, I need to go back to Egypt, and the answer to this is Jethro saying, go in peace. Obstacle number six, Moses still thinks that he's a wanted man. Remember, he doesn't know that the Pharaoh has died, but God tells him this. All the men are dead, which sought thy life. That is going to be a relief to Moses, knowing that going back to Egypt, there's not going to be wanted posters everywhere. Obstacle number seven is something that I would want you to read on your own. I'm not going to read it here. And it's, it's a part that I believe a lot of, of, of the Bible that I'll, a lot of people complicate in verse 24 through 26. But what we see here is the last obstacle to Moses obeying this commission from the Lord is Moses' own disobedience. It's apparent that Moses had circumcised his elder son, Gershom, but he had not circumcised his younger son, Eleazar. This was probably a compromise that he made with his Midianite wife, Zipporah. Do I know that for sure? No, I do not. But when I study my Bible and I, and I see everything and I, and I look at other men who have studied their Bible and who know their Bible a lot more than me, this seems to be what is the case. Um, obedience is eventually fulfilled, but Zipporah doesn't like it. And you can see her, the only words that Zipporah ever says in the Bible are, are not good. And um, because of this, actually, it is at this point, and we see in Exodus chapter 18, verse 2 and 3, that Moses tells Zipporah and his two sons to go home. He says, you're not going to come with me to Egypt. You need to go back to Midian because of this situation. So notice with me, all of these obstacles were inflicted by Moses. Every single one of these reasons that he said, I can't obey, was in his own mind, and yet God helps him over and over, seven times over, to overcome those obstacles. And it ends in, chapter 4 ends with Moses and Aaron speaking to the Israelites, showing them the signs, and the people actually believe. Uh, something that Moses did not think was going to happen, but God told them that, that they would. The people believe. Chapter 5, Moses and Aaron meet with Pharaoh. And here again, we see a key moment in the Bible. They introduce their address to Pharaoh by saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. 
And look with me at Pharaoh's answer to them in chapter 5, verse 2. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Oh boy. This sets up pretty much the entire rest of the first half of Exodus. Pharaoh says straight out, blatantly, I have no idea who the Lord is. And because I don't know who the Lord is, I have no obligation to listen to him. I have no obligation to fear or obey his word. Pharaoh takes this request to leave Egypt and worship as a sign of laziness. And the Israelite situation goes much, much worse. The elders of Israel plead with Pharaoh for mercy, but they don't get it. They blame Moses for their problems. And even Moses at the end of the chapter says, Lord, why have you sent me? Everything that you said was going to happen has not happened. You haven't delivered thy people at all. In fact, things are getting a whole lot worse. And then that leads us to chapter six. God tells Moses, now, now is the time. Now, after everything that has taken place is the time that I am going to deliver my people. Now, Moses tells the Israelites this, but at this point, they don't listen anymore. They say in verse number nine, Moses spake so unto the children of Israel, but they hearkened not unto Moses for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. You know what they're saying, basically? Moses, there's no way that we're getting out of this situation. This situation is so bad. This Pharaoh is so evil. I don't care how strong you are. This, I, I'm glad that, that the Lord has spoken to you and met with you, but there's no way. There's absolutely no way we're getting out of this situation. God charges Moses and Aaron to deliver the Israelites. He says, I promise you this is going to happen. But Moses' attitude is, Lord, if my own people won't even listen to me, how is Pharaoh going to listen to me? And at this point, at the end of chapter 6, there's a genealogy of Moses and Aaron given. It, at first glance, this seems a little random to put this here, but it's not. There's a purpose for it. There's a historical purpose for it so that people would know who Moses and Aaron are. Uh, it really shows his credentials as a Levite and as a priest, the authority that he has to approach these people. But also it introduces the next section of Exodus, just like the genealogy in Genesis introduces Abraham and how Abraham is going to continue throughout the rest of the book and his family. So this genealogy also introduces the next section of Exodus. And this begs the question, why has God allowed all of this evil to happen? It's great that the Lord is saying now is the time uh, in verse 1 of chapter 6, now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. It's, it's great that the time is now, but why wasn't it earlier? Think of all of the things that have happened before God said, okay, now is the time. Israel has been enslaved. Innocent children have been murdered by the, by the multitudes. We don't know how many. Moses murders an Egyptian. Pharaoh's uh, heart gets hardened. The, in, the labor of Israel increases over and over. Moses' faith begins to crumble. Why did it take so long for God to say, okay, now is the time for me to deliver my people? Well, we have to remember this. 
40 years now Moses has come out of Midian. So how long now has Israel been in Egypt? 430 years approximately. Every single Israelite alive right now has only known Egypt. All they know is Egyptian food. All they know is Egyptian culture. All they know is Egyptian government, Egyptian justice, Egyptian people. In fact, the Israelites were marrying with the Egyptians, and there's a mixed multitude now among them. And the most important thing, all they know is Egyptian religion, and they are surrounded by worship of Egyptian gods. Why did God wait so long? While Egypt had multiple gods and even saw Pharaoh and his children and his family as immortal, Jehovah, I am that I am, was going to show Israel that he was the one. He was the only true God. And in order to do this, he placed Israel in a position that nobody would believe they could be delivered from. And he is going to deliver them in such a special way. He's going to do it, if I could put it this way, before God would take his people out of Egypt, he was going to take Egypt out of his people. Notice the key phrase in chapter 6, verse 7. And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am the Lord, your God. Ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. I will encourage you as we go on here to highlight every single time you see something along the lines of God saying, I am doing this so that you will know that I am your God. I'm doing this. In fact, chapter 7 through 18 are one big answer to the two questions that were asked. First, by the Hebrew to Moses, and then second by the Pharaoh to Moses. The Hebrew said, who made thee a prince and a judge over us? And the Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? I know not the Lord. Chapter 7 through 18 is God answering that question. I will show you exactly who I am, and I'm going to do it in such a way where you will know, everybody will know, that I am the Lord. I am that I am, and there is none else. When he was done, Israel was going to have no reason not to trust him. And they would definitely have no reason not to trust other gods. So that leads us to part two, chapter 7 through 18, where God delivers his people. God tells Moses he has no reason to fear Pharaoh. It ended with Moses saying, how, how is Pharaoh going to listen to me? And he says in chapter 7, verse 1, I've made thee a god unto Pharaoh. And basically what he's saying is, in Pharaoh's mind, Moses, I have made him see you as an equal. There is no reason for you to fear him. Go and deliver my people. God tells Moses, however, that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened. Not only was Pharaoh going to harden his heart, but God was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Why would he do that? Now, here is what we have seen started, a ball rolling in chapter 6, verse 7. I am doing this so that ye will know that I am the Lord. So why is God going to allow Pharaoh to harden his heart? And then why is God above that going to harden Pharaoh's heart on his own so that Pharaoh will not let the people go? Why would he do that? Well, he says in chapter, uh, let me see here, in chapter 7, verse 4 and 5. 
Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt. And then verse 5, and the Egyptians shall what? Shall know that I am the Lord. That's why I'm doing this. I'm going to do it so that everybody knows that I am the Lord. The battle begins in chapter 7 between the Lord and the Egyptian gods. Aaron's rod becomes a servant. Pharaoh's magicians use enchantments, and they are able to do the same, but Aaron's rod swallows up the others. God is making his point, but Pharaoh uh, is hardening his heart. The plagues begin. The first plague, and notice how all of these plagues are meant specifically to attack one of the Egyptian gods. So you have the first plague, which is the water to blood. Egyptians saw, and they still see the Nile River as the source of life. Well, God was going to turn it into a source of death. Why would he do that? Chapter 7, verse 17, Thus saith the Lord, In this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Second plague of frogs. This was against the Egyptian goddess Hecht, or Hecate. Uh, she was the fertility goddess with the head of a frog. Why would God allow these frogs to come? And then he said, I'm going to remove those frogs when Pharaoh um, repented and, and somewhat insincerely repented. And he says, I am going to remove the frogs tomorrow. Why did God let this happen? Chapter 8, verse 10, that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. The third plague here, lice. This is against the god Geb. Uh, he was the god of the dust, and the dust, of course, turned into the lice. Now, a very important shift happens here in the story. Up until this point, the magicians have been able to recreate everything that God has done. Uh, the staffs turning into snakes, the water into blood, the frogs, they were all able to recreate, but they could not recreate the lice. And so even the Egyptian magicians, look at what they say in chapter 8, verse 19. Then the magicians said unto Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. It's working. What God is doing, he says, why am I doing all this? I'm doing this so that people will know who I am. Well, it's beginning to work. The fourth plague comes, which is flies. This is against the god Kepri. Uh, this was the God of creation to the Egyptians with the head of a fly. Now, also up until this point, the Israelites have suffered with the Egyptians, but now God was going to make a break. He was going to separate his people. Why was he going to do that? Chapter 8, verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 22, I will sever in that day the land of Goshen in which my people dwell that no swarms of flies shall be there to the end that thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Are we noticing a pattern here? The fifth plague, Moraine. This is against the god Apis or the bull god that pictured all worship of cattle. And of course, we know many, um, many countries still today worship cattle. But Pharaoh's heart still grows harder. The sixth plague is boils. This is against the gods Isis and Imhotep. Uh, these are the gods of health and healing. But Pharaoh's heart still grows harder. And at this point, all of these plagues, the, the, the plagues kind of come in groups of three. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then leading up to that last plague. And now that God has, has ended the second round of three plagues, he says to Pharaoh, listen, things are about to get a lot worse for you. And look at what he says in chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. The Lord said unto Moses, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say unto him, thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, 
Let my people go, that they may serve me. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart, and upon thy servants, and upon thy people. Why? That thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. In fact, there was only one reason why this Pharaoh was even in power. In verse 16, And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name, what name? I am. That my name may be declared throughout all the earth, not yours, Pharaoh. The seventh plague comes, which is hail. This is against the gods of Newt and Shu. These are the gods of sky and weather. This was also an attack against the crops, which the Egyptians looked upon very highly. And again, we see progress being made. Look in chapter 9, verse 20. He that feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee into the houses. So first you have the Egyptian magician saying, this is the finger of God, and now you have Pharaoh's servants saying, okay, we're going to start to listen to this God of the Hebrews. Everything is working in God's plan. God agrees to stop the hail, but he doesn't just say, okay, it'll stop. He says it's going to stop at a specific time. When Moses exits the city and raises up his hand, it's going to stop in that moment. And why would it stop in that moment? Chapter 9, verse 29, that thou mayest know how that the earth is the Lord's. The earth is not, does not belong to, uh, to Newt and Shu, the, the, the gods of sky and weather, Egyptians. The earth belongs to me, and I'm going to make that very clear. At this point, Pharaoh has compromised several times with Moses, but God continues to harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. In chapter 10, verse 2, I am not allowing Pharaoh to let my people go just yet because I want you to be able to tell your sons. I want you to be able to tell your son's sons that I am the Lord at the end of chapter, two, chapter 10, verse 2, that ye may know how that I am the Lord. The eighth plague comes, locusts. This is against Nepher and Nepri, the god and goddess of grain. All that the hail left behind, the locusts destroyed. And then the ninth plague, which is darkness. Now, if we have never heard of the gods Apis and Isis and Imhotep and Kepri and all of those, we have all heard of the Egyptian god Ra. That is their main god, their number one god, their sun god. And in fact, this entire time that all of their other gods were being attacked and brought down, they probably defiantly were screaming, at least we have Ra, and Ra is still rising every single day. And God says, watch what I'm going to do. And for three days and three nights, there comes darkness so thick, the Bible says that it can be felt. Their main god, their number one god, is being shown. He has no he is no match to the Lord, the I am. The tenth plague comes, which is the death of the firstborn. This was an attack against all gods and even against Pharaoh himself. Every firstborn was dedicated to one of the Egyptian gods. God clarifies that Israel would not be touched by this plague. Chapter eleven, verse seven, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And Pharaoh finally lets the people go. The Passover is instituted and kept as a reminder of deliverance. Up until now, God had separated Israel from the Egyptians on his own. Now the Israelites must obey 
in order to be spared. The Bible says, if, or I'm sorry, when I see the blood. So when you obey and you put the, the blood on the doorpost, then I will pass over you. But let's ask this question. Why wouldn't the Israelites obey? Why wouldn't the Israelites follow God's word after everything that they have seen God do? And they do. They obey and they believe and they trust. The Bible says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord, the Bible says in chapter 12, verse 12. During the Passover, we see God giving a wonderful reminder, not only of the deliverance from Egypt, but also of future deliverance, future deliverance that is going to come. Deliverance from sin through Jesus Christ, our own Passover lamb. Chapter 13, now that they're in the wilderness, God continues his lessons to the Israelites. He tells them the Passover is to be kept yearly. I don't want you forgetting what I have done for you. All the firstborns were to be set apart for God, to be a reminder of everything that I have done for you. God led them away from the land of the Philistines, even though it was a shorter route. He led them with a cloud by day and with a fire by night. And all of this was for a specific purpose. In chapter 13, verse 8 and 9, and verse 14 through 16, he says, All of this is to be a, a memorial of how I have showed myself strong to you over Egypt. Chapter 14 comes and God hardens Pharaoh's heart once again. Pharaoh raises up from Egypt and he pursues after the Israelites. God purposefully leads the Israelites into a place where they would be trapped. He tells them, I want you to turn right now and encamp here. And the Israelites find themselves in a place where they have the Red Sea before them, mountains on either side, and an angry Egyptian army led by an evil Pharaoh behind them. Why would God do that? Well, again, he says in chapter 14, verse 4, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. In chapter 14, verse 18, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. Moses parts the Red Sea. God allows Pharaoh to follow. Israel is delivered, and Egypt is destroyed. And look at what it says in chapter 14, verse 31. And Israel saw the great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't right now? Wasn't that God's purpose? That was God's plan for everything. You are going to know that I am who I say I am. Chapter 15, the Israelites sing a song. And what do they say? They say in verse 2, the Lord is my strength. They say, he is my God. They say, I will exalt him. It appears that they have learned their lesson, but God still has more to teach. They come up to a place where the waters are bitter, and they call that place Mara. And what do they do immediately? They murmur against Moses. But God cleanses the water, and he teaches them a lesson in verse 26 of chapter 15. He says, listen, if you are going to follow me, if you are going to obey me, if you are going to trust me as your God, 
This isn't just a one-time decision. Now, of course, we're not talking about salvation. When you trust in the Lord to save you, that is a one-time decision. But we live by faith. We live in trust to the Lord day by day by day. And God says, every single time you come up to an obstacle, you can't be doubting me. You need to diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God in chapter 14, verse 26. Now, what better way to teach his people to diligently hearken unto his voice and to daily trust him than by putting them in a situation where they have to trust him daily? and where they have to rely on him daily. So that's exactly what he does in chapter 16. The people begin to murmur because they have no food. So God sends flesh in the evening, and he says manna in the morning. There was a, there was a catch to manna. It had to be gathered daily. If you didn't gather it that morning, you didn't have anything for that day. If you tried to gather too much and leave it for the next day, it rotted away. You only had enough for that day. No matter how big your family was, how small your family was, you gathered just enough. And what is God trying to teach them? When you rely on me, my grace is always sufficient. And then especially on that sixth day, he says on this day, you're going to gather twice as much so that you do not work on the Sabbath day and you're just going to have to trust me that it's not going to spoil overnight like it does when you gather on other days of the week. Why did he do all of this? He says in chapter 16, verse 12, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. Okay, fine. We get it, right? We may say at this point, it seems a little repetitive. We understand what the Lord is trying to do, but God knows our heart. God knows the heart of man. We are quick to believe and we are quick to disbelieve. It is very easy for us to walk in faith and then immediately start walking in fear. We're fickle people. In chapter 17, the people again murmur because there's no water. And Moses says, why do you tempt the Lord? Has he not made his way clear? Has he not made it clear that he is your God? That if you need water, he can give you water. That if you need food, he can give you water. You're eating, or he can give you food. He's given you angel food right now. He's given you flesh in the evening and manna in the morning. And he's done so all throughout this wilderness trek. And now because you have no water, why are you tempting the Lord? But the people even go so far in chapter 17, verse 7, to say at the end, is the Lord among us or not? Seriously? Seriously, that's the attitude of the people right now. After all that they have seen, their attitude is, is the Lord among us or not? God's answer, he gives them water out of a rock. He delivers them from an army, a formidable army, the Amalekites. And God says, I have done all of this for a purpose. Write this in a book of remembrance. I never want you forgetting what I have done for you. And that leads us to the end of part number two in chapter 18. Moses is reunited with his family. When he's reunited, he tells Jethro, his father-in-law, of all that God has done for them in Egypt and in the wilderness. And a Midianite priest a non-Israelite, a non-Hebrew, is the one to say this in verse 11 of chapter 18. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. For in the thing wherein they dealt proudly, he was above them. 
That's a non-Israelite saying that. Who else has noticed this so far? Egyptian magicians have noticed this so far. Uh, Pharaoh's servants have noticed this so far. And now a Midianite priest is saying, I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. And in the meantime, Moses is dealing with nothing but problems. You read throughout the rest of chapter 18, Jethro comes and sees that Every single day, Moses is inundated with problems. The problems are petty. The problems are numerous. And Jethro tells him, if you keep on going this way, you're going to be sent to an early grave. You can't do this. You need to find people to help you. So part number two in chapter seven begins with God making his objective known. He says, I am going to work in such a way where everybody the Egyptians, my people, everybody in the world, everybody involved is going to know that I am the Lord. There is no one else besides me. And at this point, it seems like the only person or the only people who aren't getting it are his own people. At every turn, God has done everything to keep his promise. When Satan attacked in chapter 1, God protected. When Moses sinned in chapter 2, God used it for good. When Moses objected in chapter 3 and 4, God overcame the objections. When Pharaoh raised himself up, God raised himself higher. When his people doubted, God gave them good reason to have faith and to trust in him. When his people complained, God provided for their needs. But isn't that what God has always done? Isn't that what God did since the beginning? No matter what happens, he remains faithful to his covenant promise to restore fellowship with his people, to bless his people, and eventually bless all people through his people. How's he going to do this, though? Well, that's what part three is about in Exodus chapter 19 through 40, and that is what we are going to cover next week. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.